Socrates taught that the most fundamental of all the virtues was self-discipline. And nowhere in the ancient Greek culture was self-discipline more evident than it was in the area of athletics. If you think that sports are a big deal today in our culture, they were all the more significant in Greece in the first century. When Paul writes this letter, team sports weren't so big, but individual sports were huge, and athletes were celebrities, big-time celebrities. All of us know about the Olympic Games, of course. They were the most well-known but the Isthmian Games, which were held in Corinth, were almost as important as the Olympic Games in those days. The Isthmian Games were held in the alternating four years from the Olympic Games, beginning at around 582 B.C., and they went all the way into the late 300s when they were discontinued by the Eastern Orthodox Church, who saw the athletic games as being too closely associated with pagan ritual. And they were probably right. Because idolatry was incorporated into these athletic games in a way that it was woven to the, into the very fabric of what they were doing. The Greeks viewed the games as an occasion for celebrating the patronage of their gods, little g. Everyone in that culture understood what it took to become a winner in athletics, a superior and a successful athlete. One had to devote themselves totally to the task. One ancient Greek writer described the effort that was necessary to compete at the highest levels this way. He said, you have to submit to discipline, follow a strict diet, give up sweet cakes, train under compulsion at a fixed hour, in heat or cold, you must not drink cold water nor wine just whenever you feel like it. I don't know about the sweet cakes part. Another said, another ancient Greek writer said, Athletes are set apart for more rigid training to apply themselves to the building up of their physical strength. They are kept from lavish living, from more tempting dishes, from more pleasurable drinks. They are urged on. They are subjected to tortuous toils. They more strenuously exert themselves than others. Their greater victory is their hope. The sacrifices necessary. To enjoy success in the athletic realm were common knowledge in Corinth. I just read you two. There are li literally dozens of comments in ancient Greek material about what it took to become a superior athlete in Corinth. So when Paul wants to make a point about self-discipline and success in the spiritual life, he chooses an arena that's very familiar to them. In 1 Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 9, Verses 24 through 27, read along with me, where Paul closes out this chapter by saying, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating air. But I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. There are a few things 
that I need to say before we get into the specifics of the text itself by way of introduction. And the first is that Paul is using the arena of sports or self-discipline in athletics as a metaphor, or metaphor if you're from Texas, as a metaphor for self-discipline in the spiritual life. Now watch, this is so important. He is not condemning athletics, nor athletes, nor expending energy on something that has no eternal value. He is not commenting on that. That misses the point entirely. His message is much more fundamental. The message is, if we will spend a great deal of energy and tremendous self-discipline to reap a benefit that is admittedly only temporary, why would we not exercise the same or even greater self-discipline in an arena where the benefits are eternal? Like many of you, not all I know, but many of you, I've competed in athletics over the course of my life. I still do a little working out. It's difficult to see sometimes, but I, you know, still do it. And I remember those hot days in your late teens and early 20s when you're just out there sweating and perspiring and you just give it everything you have in a practice so that you can earn a spot on the team and maybe get to play Friday night or perhaps Saturday night. And you just give it your all and you're out there. And a few years from then, nobody really knows whether you were successful or not. And frankly, very few people really care whether you were successful in that realm or not. But, it, but at the time, I think it's very legitimate. Sometimes my wife and I, because since she was not into athletics at all, she wondered why my boys were so into it, why they would spend so much energy and time and devote themselves to it. You know, get up early and work out. Then go to practice and work out. Spend time with a playbook. Why would you do that? It's just a game. That's okay. Paul's not saying it's not legitimate to run in a race or to compete for a prize. He's not saying that it's not legitimate to give it your all in a profession or to give it your all in a business or to give it your all in anything just because the rewards may not be permanent. That's not his point. Some people look at it and say, well, you shouldn't compete in athletics. I don't care how strong my business is. I don't care how I look, how I feel. I'm just going to concentrate on the things eternal. That's, okay, okay, that's missing the point here. The point is, if we'll spend time and a great deal of energy and tr exercise tremendous self-discipline to reap a benefit that's only temporary, and we all do it. In one aspect of our lives or another, we all do it. But if we'll do that, then why not all the more, why not would we discipline ourselves when it comes to the spiritual realm? That's his point. The second thing I need to introduce this morning is in context, in context, in context. We always want to stay in the context. That's where we make mistakes in application is if we don't get the interpretation right. But in the context, the area of the spiritual life that he is referring to is the voluntary restriction motivated by love of certain liberties that we have as believers. See, he hasn't changed his subject. He introduced the subject in chapter 8. And then he's illustrating it in chapter 9. First, with himself. Remember earlier in chapter 9, he said, I have every right to take, a to take remuneration from you, but I'm not doing it because I'm afraid that you're not mature enough to handle that. I don't want to mess the message up in any way at all. So I voluntarily set aside a right I had for your benefit. 
he's still talking about that same voluntary restriction of, of certain liberties that we have because of someone else. And what he's saying here is in the, the specific area of self-discipline that Paul's referring to here is that area of exercising love. Specifically the area of exercising love when we restrict some of our liberties for the benefit of someone else. The context hasn't changed. And it's not going to change even through the next chapter. So we don't want to look at these verses totally in isolation. I know we had a guest speaker one time, phenomenal guest speaker actually, came and spoke on just these verses. But I noticed when he spoke on these verses, he didn't remind us that the overall context here was disciplining ourselves to voluntarily, out of love, voluntarily restrict certain liberties that we have for the benefit of someone else. That's the specific context here. There are times when love trumps liberty. Then the third thing, and this is the biggest thing, so I want you to listen so carefully, because serious mistakes have been made in the application of this passage by people who ought to know better because they take this passage in isolation apart from its context, not only in this letter or this chapter, but in all Paul's writings and in all the Bible, actually. So listen carefully here. Paul is not referring to losing one's eternal life in that final phrase when he said, after I have preached to others that I myself should be disqualified. He is not referring to losing one's eternal life. He's referring here to a loss of eternal reward, specifically reward that's given out at the judgment seat of Christ. He's going to return to that subject in the second letter, chapter 5. But he's not referring to losing one's eternal life. It's made clear, crystal clear in the scriptures that eternal life once gained can't be lost. All three members of the Trinity play a role in the security of the believer Jesus himself said in John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Did, did you hear that? They shall never perish. Once you have eternal life, once it's been given to you, when are you going to perish, according to our Lord? Never if eternal life could be lost, we're calling it the wrong thing, Charles Rowery once quipped. He was right about that. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. The idea there is that the Son is omnipotent. He's eternal God. He's undiminished deity. And if the Son's got you in his grip, it's a tight grip, and you can't Remove yourself from the grip. Nobody else can remove God's fingers from you. And you can't remove God's fingers from you because he's omnipotent. His grip can't be broken by anyone, even you. Now, some people read that passage and they say, well, okay, I understand nobody else can snatch me. Satan can't snatch me, but I can get myself out. Are you stronger than omnipotence? Say no, because you're not, neither am I. No, he is omnipotent and he has this in his grip. But if that wasn't enough, the Father has you in his grip as well. The passage goes on to say, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So it's like you're hanging off a cliff and the Son has one hand and the, and the Father has the other. You're not going anywhere. You're not falling. He's got you in his grip. But as they say on TV, that's not all. The Holy Spirit has you in his grip as well. In Ephesians chapter 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for or literally into the day of redemption. 
you were sealed up until the day of redemption. Now, in the ancient world, when one monarch or when one ruler would want to send a message to another ruler, they would write it on a parchment, and then they would roll it up, and then they would seal it with a hot wax and their personal seal so that that letter couldn't be opened. If it was opened, the one who received it would realize it. The one monarch would send that letter with a trusted servant to deliver the the message to another king. When the other king got it, all the seals should be still in place. If they weren't, a message was sent back to the first king and the messenger was executed. You don't open it up. Now that was wax. It could be opened up. And I'm sure sometimes in the ancient world it has been opened up, but not this seal. Because just like the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit is omnipotent. And if he seals your letter, that letter's not getting opened up until when? Until the day of redemption. That's our future in eternity. That's when this letter is going to be opened up. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have us in their grip. And we can't escape it. Paul himself addressed this same concept in Romans chapter 8 when he began the chapter. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The phrase in Christ Jesus in Pauline literature is a technical term that he uses for someone who has been baptized by means of the Holy Spirit and placed in a union with Christ into the body of Christ. That's what in Christ Jesus means in Paul's writings. So he begins that great chapter by saying there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Then he gives us some of the most incredible theology in the middle portion of the chapter. But then in a bookend fashion, at the end of the chapter, he returns to the topic that he introduced the chapter with. There there being no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And listen to these words. Because Paul says at the end of that chapter, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, watch, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is... In Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's making the point that there is nothing that's going to separate you from God's love. In Jesus' own words, he says, I've got you in my grip. The Father's got you in his grip. Nobody's going to separate you. Paul puts it a little different way. Neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. There's nothing in heaven. There's nothing on earth. Satan can't separate you from the love of God. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. You know, everything outside of God is a created thing. There's nothing that's going to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then in the middle of that set of couplets, he says that there's no future judgment, nor things present, nothing you can do today, nor things to come. Now, have you ever considered what the things to come would include? Things to come include any future judgment. If you have personally trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life, you've got it. If you have received eternal life by grace through faith and you're the only one, you and God are the only ones that know really if you've done that. I accept your testimony. But you know if you've done that, then you are in God's grip. And you don't have to fear any future judgment. You don't have to fear getting to heaven and getting in the wrong line. You know, that's the line for the great white throne. That's the line for the judgment seat of Christ. If you're given a choice, take the judgment seat of Christ line. (laughs) But you won't be given a choice. There's no danger of you appearing at the wrong judgment. There is no danger at all for you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ of hearing Jesus Christ say, you know what, I know you trusted me, but the life that you led was just a life of faithlessness. What were you thinking? No, I've changed my mind. You're not coming up here. Now, so many people, 
So many people in this world think it's that way. They live in abject fear that they're going to get there and Christ is going to say, the life you lived wasn't good enough. And he's not going to do that because the death he died was good enough. It was sufficient for all. Efficient only for those who believe, but it was sufficient for all. With these three points, let's move in briefly to the, to the verses themselves. Actually, they're, they're pretty straightforward. It won't take long. In verse 24 again, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one wins a prize or receives a prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Again, team sports weren't in vogue at the time. So Paul uses the illustration of running in a race. All run in any particular race, but only one comes out victorious. So what should our goal be? To win. That's, I know that's very politically incorrect in many circles today, but our goal should be to win. Now he's not saying, so remember this is a metaphor, he's not saying that in the Christian life there's only going to be one winner. Or that the spiritual life should be a competition between one believer and another. In fact, that's just the opposite of the point he's trying to make. Think about the context again. In chapter 8, he's saying there are certain liberties I need to lay aside out of love for somebody else's benefit. No, the Christian life is not a competition between you and me or you and your wife or you and the person sitting next to you. No, 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 no. There are plenty of crowns of glory and crowns of life to go around. Just because you get one doesn't mean somebody else is not going to get one. That's not the point. If there is any competition, and I hate to even use that word, it's not between you and somebody else in the Christian life. It's between you and you. Between who, who you are today and who you were yesterday. And who you're going to be tomorrow. And the level of faithfulness that you have. So he's not, he's not introducing competition into the Christian life. Heaven forbid. That kind of thing just blows unity right out the window. That would be totally foreign to anything else Paul taught. But the point is that we must lovingly restrict the use of our liberties for the benefit of others. That's part of winning. You know this guy that was on Two Men and a Baby or whatever it was? Charlie Sheen's his name. But, you know, he was all about winning. You remember that rant that he went on for a while that was actually very embarrassing? And I understand that he's kind of repented from a lot of that now, maybe not all of it. And I'm very grateful for that because it was almost insanity. You know, winning, winning. Well, see, his view of winning was defeating someone else. That's not the scriptural view of winning. When Paul says, run in such a way as that we might win, he's talking about you personally and me personally. If there's any competition, it's with ourselves, not with someone else. And actually, the word really isn't even appropriate. But he's just going to say, you have a spiritual life. We all have a spiritual life. You may say, I don't have much of one. Well, at least you're honest about it. But you have one. And all he's saying here is that the spiritual life that we have should be lived in such a way as that we're victorious. And how do you find, define victory in the spiritual life? Faithfulness, and in specific in this context, the spiritual life is defined as exercising love. It's different than any other battle that we face. In most battles that we face, we have to pull out a bigger gun or spend more money, or get smarter, whatever it is. In this one, we just simply have to love as a result of what we know about God. That's victory here. So do you want to win in the spiritual life? You've got one. You're going to be evaluated for it anyway. Why not win? Why not be victorious or successful if you prefer? Just so long as we understand how God's defining success here. Success is defined as love, and in this specific context, Success is defined as lovingly setting aside certain of our liberties if it's going to help somebody else. 
Doesn't sound like victory in most areas of life, does it? But you can win in this area of life. And I hope that you do. And then he moves on to the heart of the message in verse 25. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Again, that common metaphor for that time, that common illustration. They do it, and here's the point. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. If we'll spend a great deal of energy and tremendous self-discipline to reap a benefit that's temporary, and we all have in one way or another. Why would we not exercise the same or greater self-discipline in an arena where the benefits are eternal? I'll tell you this because you don't know, and it's about time that you did. I was an all-state football player. Did you know that? (laughs) I can tell it's really impressive. It was a long time ago, but I was an all-state football player. I recently found my little all-state plaque that I had. Sydney had put it in the back of my closet behind all my clothes. Seriously. I said, who's going to see that there? She said, who wants to see that? <laughs> that was a long time ago. I said, but it says Associated Press right there. First team Allstate. Associated Press. She wasn't impressed because it was a long time ago. She didn't know me then. If she did, she might have been impressed. <laughs> but you know what? That thing's gathering dust. At the time I received it, it was really important. I went to the Rotary Club and everything. They gave it to me in front of a lot of people. I gave a speech. But you know what? Every year that passes, it it means less and less. I worked hard for that. I mean, I worked really, really hard, just like a lot of you do now. I started exercising more frequently in January for a different kind of goal. Not not all that long ago, I I ran three miles. That doesn't sound like a lot, but for me it was. I got into running three miles at one stretch, and I thought I did really good. And I went and met my buddies at lunch, and... I said, hey, I ran three today. They said, are you out of your mind? Why are you doing that? You're too old to do that. You're going to hurt yourself doing that. I thought I'd get a, hey, way to go. <laughs> All I got was, are you out of your mind? <laughs> and they're probably right. But I wanted to get, it, get fit. Well, if I'll do that and almost have a heart attack, literally, I think, doing that, why wouldn't I exercise self-discipline in my spiritual life? If I'm going to do something for some, some temporary gain and it's fine to do it and I intend to keep doing something like that, why wouldn't I spend a little bit of self-discipline, self-control on something that's going to last forever? Because, you know, once you get the, your rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, they're never going to be put in the back of the closet. They're not going to wear out. They're not going to, they're not going to grow old and they're not going to accumulate dust. It's forever, my friends. But the thing is, it's forever one way or the other. Now, I, there's no unhappiness in heaven, so don't take me wrong. There's no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, no more death. But the life that you're living right now, that you'll finish, when you finish this 24 hours a day, it's all over. That 24 hours, you start a new one tomorrow, you can't get it back. But the life that we take so casually, in such a cavalier manner sometimes, will be evaluated for that. And the evaluation has eternal ramifications. Nobody remembers the grades that you made in school. Maybe you do, but nobody else does, and nobody else really cares. But the grade you get on this one, you're going to carry around with you forever. We'll study it a lot more when we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, I think whatever shame is at the judgment seat of Christ is very temporary. Again, don't get me wrong with that. But, But the victory is one that will be enjoyed forever. It's eternal. So when he says they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable That's what he's talking about. There was also a financial reward for the athlete, but it's not eternal. 
There's a very well-known football player. He's in the news, so I don't mind using his name, Terrell Owens. He'll likely be inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in four or five years, whenever they count his retirement beginning. And it's estimated that during the course of his career, he earned between 80 and 100 million dollars. I'll say that again: 80 and 100 million dollars. And Terrell Owens was just on Dr. Phil recently, and Terrell Owens is now broke, flat broke. Has four children from four different women, can't pay child support to any of them. At least that's the claim of the attorney. Flat broke. He's got two homes in Dallas. They're being foreclosed on. Flat broke. One of the most well-known players in terms of his athletic ability. Now, some of the stuff he did we wouldn't approve of with some of his antics. But in terms of pure ability, one of the most able players ever play that position. Flat broke. And he desperately wants to land with another team this year to make some money, but nobody will have him. Not one team will invite him to their camp. His reward for playing football, he was famous for a while, but those things have proven temporary for him. The money's gone. Even if he had invested the money wisely, let's say he had gotten a good person to take care of his money and he wouldn't have blown it on some things. In the end, his money doesn't even have eternal value. That's how he uses it, that it would have eternal value. But just having it in the bank, you have heard you can't take it with you, right? You have heard the old joke about there's no hearses drawing U-Hauls behind them. you got to do something with it while you got it. That's what counts. But as a Christian, we're to exercise self-discipline that has eternal rewards, imperishable rewards. They are not temporary. Once you get one at the judgment seat of Christ, it's yours forever and will never be put into the back of the closet. It's as permanent as the God that will give it to you. Again, there's nothing wrong with exercising self-discipline in temporal things. Yes, go to the gym. Yes, take that seminar. Do that continuing education so that you can become more proficient in your profession. Yes, work those extra hours so you'll be first in line for the promotion. If we'll do those things, all the more we should exercise self-discipline in our spiritual life. Now, what does that mean? We should... Be in the word daily. We should be on on our knees in prayer fervently, regularly. We should serve earnestly. We should exercise stewardship of the resources that God has given us faithfully. And we should exercise love more deeply and consistently. That's what self-discipline means in the spiritual life. In the word daily, praying fervently, serving earnestly. Exercising stewardship faithfully and loving more deeply and consistently. And now finally, Paul says, I I run in such a way that is not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating air. But I buffet my body and make it my slave. Thus possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. As he closes again, returning to this metaphor, Paul lived his life with a sense of purpose. Every single day he woke up with a purpose. I just don't understand believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what their circumstance in life, no what their financial circumstance, no matter what their age, no matter what their health circumstance, saying, you know, Bruce, I just don't have any purpose anymore. Are you still alive? Are you still breathing God's air that he gave you? Are you still the, the grateful recipient of a heart that still beats? Then you have a purpose. And you and I better both get with it. Because that time that we have been given is limited in this life. We need to wake up every day and exercise self-discipline and realize we have a purpose here in this life. If we didn't have a purpose, God takes us out. 
You know how you know you got a purpose? Because you're still here. As soon as he wants you home, he's going to take you home. Until then, your purpose still stands, and that's to glorify him with every breath that you've been given. In whatever field it is that he's placed before you to glorify him. All of us have different fields. So what Paul does is, yes, he made tents. And I'm sure when he made tents in Corinth as his job, I'm sure he made the best tent he could possibly make. I would love to have had one. I'm, I'm sure it was crafted very, very well. But when all was said and done, his ultimate focus was on what was really important. He knew that there was a never, never time that would ever come in his life where he could coast. I've achieved everything I wanted to in the, in the spiritual life, so I think I'm going to retire now. Now, you may retire from your profession or your business, but you never retire from the spiritual life, ever. We must finish well. And what Paul's saying here at the end is not that he could lose his salvation, but he's saying, just because I preach this truth to others, and just because, and I'll say it, Paul would never say it, but I'll say it for Paul, just because Paul had achieved a certain level of maturity at this point in his life, it didn't mean that he could coast. He had to continue to live out these truths personally. He had to finish well. May we never become sloppy in our spiritual lives. May we never retire. May we, may we never think that we can coast in our spiritual lives. If you're alive today, you need to be living it. I need to be living it for the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, if we'll spend time, a great deal of energy and exercise, a great deal of self-control and self-discipline to reap a benefit that's only temporary, why should we not all the more exercise the same or even greater self-discipline in an arena where the benefits are eternal? 